Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, this is Pia Baranchini and welcome to Everything is the Best, the podcast where I get vulnerable and make others do it with me. The goal here is to deep dive into interesting people's journeys, finding common denominators, and hopefully making you feel not so alone. So let's laugh, let's cry, and let's get inspired to live our best lives. Evan Funke is a legend. He is a man fixated on perfection. A two-time James Beard-nominated chef with arguably one of the best Italian restaurants in the U.S., Felix Trattoria. With over two decades of culinary experience, including working for Wolfgang Puck and a quick stint as a teacher, Evan took a job he despised working under a chef from Bologna who refused to teach him about his Italian cooking. So he quit, bought a plane ticket, and moved to the Italian city for three months, learning from the iconic Maestra Alessandra how to make pasta. And so began the obsession, the shapes, the culture, the history. It became his life's work. We talk about what it was like to open his dream restaurant, and how hard it was to close it after realizing his partner was a con man, how to rise from the darkness and get back up again. I am beyond honored to have Evan on the podcast. This is a story of resilience, dedication, and faith. Don't forget to stay tuned to the end of the podcast where Davide and I will answer your relationship questions. I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to do this. My pleasure. I know that you're literally the most busy person in the world. I'd like to be busier. Yeah, we can get right into that. Have you always been like a type A psychopath? <laughs> I take that as a compliment. It is because it's what it's like the common denominator amongst the most successful people in the world. Yeah, I mean, I think my my dad very early on established that, uh, not in so many words, but established that perfection was uh, definitely a good thing to chase. Mm-hmm. And um, he, you know, he set an almost impossible work ethic to follow, you know, cause he would be uh, growing up. He was never around. He was always on the set. I remember one time he was shooting in nine, 1990, he was shooting total recall. When he did come home, he had like a huge gash on his head because something fell on him from, oh from my above God. because he hadn't been sleeping. So, you know, would he get restless when he was in between movies or did he take advantage of like being home and spending time with you guys? Mm, he would definitely get restless. I get super restless. Davide's, he just took off because he's like, he just got on his motorcycle and like drove to the hills because he's so restless. Yeah. When you stop moving, you die. Yeah. 
I feel that way too. So just for some context, your father is an Academy Award winning cinematographer, correct? He's a director of photography for special effects. Director of photography for special effects. Unbelievable. Yeah. And you guys all grew up in the Palisades? Grew up in the Palisades on Lower Bienvenida for the first, you know, 15 years of my life. And then we moved to uh, the Alphabet Streets in the Palisades. And um, What high school did you go to? Uh, I went to Crespi in the Valley. Oh, yeah. okay. I didn't go to Pali. Everybody thinks I went to Pali. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I went to Crespi and uh, I'm, not, I'm never good at school. Me ever. neither. I never, I, I disliked it greatly. Did you have hobbies in high school? You know, I, I joined the, like the football team and the track team just for the camaraderie, but I was never actually a very good athlete at all. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad's not a, a core, very coordinated, <laughs> but um, like I knew that there was something inside that, that had a rhythm like forever and ever that there was some type of rhythm. There was a certain dexterity, but it only existed in my upper body. <laughs> like moving my legs in conjunction with everything else. I played drums for about a decade when I was a kid. Oh, wow. Awesome. I also uh, rode dressage, English style uh, horseback riding. You did? Yeah. I did. What a fun fact. My brothers and sister, like mercilessly teased me. <laughs> but I had so much fun. And, you know, I was a very rotund young man. Mm-hmm. And it got to a point when I was about 13 that, um, that I had to stop riding horses because they ran out of horses big enough to, <laughs> to hold me. And the last horse that I rode was, his name was Gus. And he was half Clydesdale, half uh, buckskin. And he oh, was wow. 18, 18 and a half hands. Massive horse. Massive horse. So I have to get up on a box to get on. That's oh, okay. my God. So yeah, I, I rode horses. I played drums. My parents sent me to art school when I was about 12 years old. So um, lot, a lot of artistic talent uh, in my family. I think what gets really hard sometimes, which is why I love interviewing people like you on the podcast is, and Dobbin and I talk about this all the time, if, if you don't have like a thing when you're young, it can be really daunting. And especially if you're a creative, because it can go in so many directions. And for a while, there's always that moment where you're kind of spinning before you hit your thing. Like at what point, I know that you always loved watching your mom cook and would open up her cookbooks and her recipes from like a young age. But at what point were you like, food is my thing? Um, It actually took me a long time. All of my family have been you know, semi, semi late bloomers, all of them, <laughs> but also all very talented uh, in their own right. And I did a lot of stuff before I actually found the kitchen. I was a massage therapist professionally for two years. No. Yeah. I specialized in shiatsu and Swedish massage. That's so cool. Uh, I went to firefighter school to be an EMT. I joined the Marine Corps. Amazing. I, I like literally two weeks before I went to boot camp. I, I, you know, the girl that I was dating at the time, uh, her mom was an exceptional cook, and uh, she was like, "What are you? You're completely stupid. Don't go to boot camp. Just go to culinary school. You, you've got talent. You clearly love food. Why don't you give that a try?" And it just clicked, and that and that was it. So I was completely and utterly lost. Uh, I've been to a bunch of schools. Didn't know what I wanted to do. But I wanted to do something physical. I wanted to do something difficult, which has been a theme throughout my entire life <laughs> uh, to now. Difficulty in whatever you do breeds strength. Mm-hmm. 
I said a long time pressure makes diamonds. And, um, I told my mom when I first went out, I said, I'm, I'm going to start at the top. And she's like, now you're going to start at the bottom. So it was only half right. I started at the bottom of the top and, uh, three months in a culinary school, I got a job with Wolfgang Puck at his catering facility. How did that happen? Well, what school did you go to? Le Cordon Bleu? To Le Cordon Bleu in Pasadena, which at that time was actually a good school before a mass conglomerate like bought up all of the culinary schools and made them meat grinders. It's so sad because we used to drive by that. I mean, obviously I lived close to it. So we would drive by all the time and I'd see all the chefs outside smoking. <laughs> like, oh, stress. <laughs> My mom would be like, that's where all the chefs come from. <laughs> yeah. It was a, such an iconic school. Yeah. And, you know, they, they basically sell them a, a bill of goods. You know, if you come here, you're going to be a chef. And, and that's not the case. So when you leave culinary school, you're thirty to $75,000 in debt and you're going to go get a job that pays you seven bucks an hour. Yeah. I made like seven bucks an hour for four years before I started, you know, getting a raise or whatever. So, so how did you get in with Wolfgang? Yeah. So with Wolf, they basically would allow students to come and work these big one-time events like the Oscars, the Grammys, the Emmys, so on and so oh, forth. Cool. Massive events. Uh, and they would hire students as extra hands, you know, like slop mashed potatoes on a plate and pass it to the next guy. So mm-hmm. I did a couple of those one-time events with them and um, set to, uh, to getting myself a job there by setting myself apart from everybody else. Um, and that was specifically by working harder than everybody else. That's how I got my first job. Yeah. With a PR company, I worked a big red carpet event and I just made myself stand out. Yeah. And, that, and that's literally all it was. I, the reason why I got the job was we were doing this plate up of salads and it was for like 1800 people. And there were like, I think about 200 foldable tables. And the chef there was like, okay, funky, break down all these tables. I'll be back in five minutes. Thinking that I was going to take my sweet fucking time to break them all down. But when he had got back, I'd broken all the tables down and was sweeping the floor already. He was like, Holy mm-hmm. shit. all right, you got a job kid. And that was it. That's how I got the job breaking down tables. (laughs) Well, it just shows the little bit of that little bit of extra, right? And you could have done the minimum or you could have done the maximum. I'm Arielle Laurie, host of the Blonde Files podcast, where every Wednesday I cover all things wellness. After nearly dying from drugs and alcohol six years ago, I've been on a mission to live my best, most fulfilled life. And I'm sharing everything with you. From how to achieve optimal health, well-being, and fulfillment, to the best beauty tips and even cosmetic procedures, I cover it all with raw, candid conversations with experts and inspirational guests. You can follow along with everything over on Instagram at Laurie, and make sure to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. And then how long were you with them? So I stayed with Wolf at his catering facility for two years. And then my, my disease of being too cocky got <laughs> I get a really big head and they were like, all right, good head. You're, we're sending you up. We're sending you up to Spago. Um, and that's when I was thoroughly cut down to size, like yeah. immediately, immediately. So I spent two years at Wolfgang Puck Catering and then they shipped me Spago and I stayed Spago for four years. No way. Yeah, four years in Beverly Hills. So, what were the hours like at Spago? And how old are you at this point? 
oh man, I think in my early twenties, I think 22, 23, maybe mm-hmm. that, you know, that kitchen, it's very, very different now because what was acceptable then is absolutely uh, unacceptable now. As in far every as, industry, in every industry for obvious reasons, but that kitchen was uh, an absolute pressure cooker. It was run by a chef, still is run by a chef named Lee Hafter. And he's a, uh, a pit bull of a man, a taskmaster. Mm-hmm. And again, I found a mentor just like my dad who set unbelievably impossible standards on a daily basis, unachievable standards, unachievable. But he created this pressure cooker in which people either sank or swam. Mm-hmm. And again, was provided an opportunity to set myself apart. And uh, I made sous chef there in, I think, three years, which has never been done. Whoa. And I left there as a sous chef, but I left because, number one, it was completely, it was all consuming. And I left for medical reasons. There's a story connected to it, which I tell my young line cooks who cannot, absolutely cannot fucking believe it. So one night, it was, I think it was late January in 2006 and everybody in the kitchen wore wooden clogs wooden base mm-hmm. clogs because chef lee wore wooden clogs and i developed these rather bad varicose veins and uh, one night one of the veins decided to burst so i'm cooking on the line we're doing like 515 covers 40 plus tasting menus and my sock is wet i'm like what the oh, God. step in something I lift my pant leg up and literally my vein is projectile shooting blood a foot away with my, my heart pulse. No. So I'm like off the line. So I walk to the office trailing blood the whole way. And one of the oh. chefs like, holy shit. Oh my meets God. me in the office, grabs a pair of scissors, cuts my pant leg off, puts a piece of gauze and duct tapes my leg clothes and then says... Go get back out there. No. Swear to God. And I finished the service like that, looking like a, like a pirate with a, with a ripped pant and duct tape my leg clothes. I'm going to say something that's not going to be a popular opinion, which is the things like that that you cannot get away with now are so are necessary. So necessary. So now it was so necessary. That was their MO. You, you know, suck it up. Get after it. Push, push beyond what you think is acceptable. Push yourself beyond what you think that you can do and you'll find another level. I can't believe you didn't pass out. uh, I'm not that scared of blood. It's just losing that much blood is like pass out worthy. (laughs) 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 Just logistically from like a medical standpoint. (laughs) Cookie and some orange juice. (laughs) But, um, you know, two weeks after that, I couldn't walk and I ended up getting what's called vascular stripping. And, uh, I left on medical leave from Spago and that, and that was it. And then, you know, I was on my back for a month. I didn't walk for a month. Wow. So I'm going crazy. Absolutely crazy. So my mom actually bought me my first Apple computer, a laptop. Oh my God. <laughs> it's like 2006 laptops. Oh my God. They were so heavy. They were super heavy. I still have it, but I just purged my, my whole being of all the experiences that I had had over the past six years all the recipes and ideas and whatever. And I realized I couldn't go right back to the kitchen because I like psychologically, I was a little bit broken Mm -hmm. because I had taken myself out because I had failed, basically failed my first really big failure. And uh, so I actually 
took a job as a culinary instructor at Le Cordon Bleu, my alma mater. Which didn't and last long, right? What? It didn't last long, right? No, 12 weeks. I was, <laughs> I was summarily fired for uh, being too aggressive. But, um, you know, the, this journey of being in this business, there's a, the biggest thing that happened to me, obviously the Bucato thing, and we'll talk about it later, but failure has been my guiding light. Yeah. You don't really win. When you win, you don't really learn anything about yourself. Because you're in the moment, you're winning and everything's great. But when you're losing, it gives you some serious and significant time to digest how you lost, why you lost, what decisions you made, Mm -hmm. got you to that point. And it's been the greatest teacher in my life, that's for sure. I think the kids that are a little bit younger than us, and I don't want to be like, kids that younger don't, but I do truly feel that that's going to be missing a little bit. Is that like grit and that will to persevere because I think especially now that there's like social media and you have to like always say what you do and sure. where you are and that perception of any sort of failure is unattractive. But every time I got fired was the moment that another beautiful door opened for me. So for sure. I mean, for sure. So after you got fired, then what? Was this your aha, eat, pray, love, it's Italy moment? Uh, almost. I took a horrible job at this uh, hotel in Beverly Hills called the Avalon Hotel. Oh, yeah. And it was a soul-sucking, just soul-crushing job. I didn't like it. The chef there was a shithead. He was born in Bologna, but he wouldn't teach me anything. So, and I gave him everything, you know, I'm the one thing about me, I'm either 100% in or 100% out. Do you think that was because if he knew, if he taught you, then he knew that you could pass him? You'd almost be better than him. Like you had everything and then you'd have that. I'll say it so you don't have to. But uh, yeah, so that was what really drove me to, you know, it was this kind of start of this love for pasta and the fact that he wouldn't teach me anything. So it really pissed me off. So I was like, you know what? Fuck you. I'm out. <laughs> Peace. So I bought a ticket and moved to Bologna and that was it. So what was, what's the research? Like, because obviously we hear these stories, but like logistically, how does that happen? Or do you have to like, how do you find a place to live? And how do you find what you're going to do there? And how do you eat food when you're there? I mean, I learned by making big fucking mistakes. I got, <laughs> I got lost a lot. I got, so if you put, put this into context, 2007, right? There aren't like websites. There's websites. No, that's why I'm like, how did you even find where to go? Books. I did a lot of calling. I did a lot of reading. I talked to people who had been to, to Italy and basically went online to an apartment's rental uh, site, found an apartment that was way out of my league, <laughs> way, way too expensive, uh, ended up hurting me in the life because I like, didn't have any money. I was paying for the rental and I had very little money to eat. So found an apartment, got in touch with the people, beautiful family. Um, I still talk to them today. They're wonderful. And you didn't speak any Italian at this point? Zero, zero, zero Italian. But you, you know, Italians, they speak their emotions without actually speaking words. Yes. It's the easiest people to communicate with without speaking their language. So I, I packed a bag, I flew there, you know, and I landed in Rome and it was like a beautiful, balmy 70 degrees in Rome. I was oh. like, it's going to be amazing. And then I go north to Bologna and it's fucking snowing. And I'm like... <laughs> Holy shit. 
So I ended up standing outside for like two hours in the snow waiting for them to come because there was like my cell phone didn't work. I didn't set up an international phone plan. That didn't yeah, of course not. So finally got in and then I started going to school. The school was, um, I think, five kilometers away from the apartment. Another misstep. It was like, why didn't I just rent an apartment next door? Yeah. <laughs> but I ended up learning. I ended up learning the city that way because I, I walked five miles a day to and from school and I, I learned the city. And now I know that city like the back of my hand. It was the best thing. And how did you find the school? Obviously, just word of mouth. Because it was iconic, obviously. No, it actually was it's super, super small. This time, they, she wasn't the powerhouse she is now. She's got both mm. show magazines and all that. When I went, she had a small school. It was on Via Malvasia, uh, just outside the city center. And I found her school through another webpage by a woman named Paula Ferrara. And Paula, she had this small side business where she would make pasta for your house to take away. And at the bottom of her webpage was this small icon of La Vecchia Scuola Bolognese, their old logo, not the weird chicken one they have now. So I clicked on it and it took me to their webpage and there was a phone number. So I called. And obviously, I don't speak any Italian. And I'm just trying to like, no Google Translate either. So trying to you know, communicate with them that I want to come and learn. So finally, Stefania, Alessandra's um, daughter, gets on the phone. She spoke English. Oh, brilliant. She said, hey, I really want to come uh, and learn to make pasta. I'm like, okay, 1,000 euros. I'll see you when you get here. And that was it. It was 1,000 euros for three months. No. Three months of education for a thousand years, and they fed you every day. Oh my god! Lunch every day. It was amazing. So, are you just in heaven at this point when you're there? Once you get into your rhythm? Yeah, I mean, it was the first time I'd ever been away from home for that extended amount of time by myself. I didn't go to college. I yeah. live with a big family, so you know, alone time is not a really uh, not a thing in a big yeah. family, and. Um, it was the first time that I, I actually grew as a person, mm-hmm. grew as a person, grew as a man, grew as a cook, as a chef. And, the, you know, the past six years, seven years of culinary work, French, Asian, Japanese technique, it all went out the window. And I, I saw how the Italians lived. I saw how they ate. I saw their reverence for seasonality and the land and all of these amazing things that make Italy what Italy is. Mm-hmm. And I adopted their approach and that, and that was it. I didn't look back. I, I knew I wanted to cook this way. I knew I wanted to live this way. It's next to impossible to live like an Italian in the United States because the pace is just too different. It's <laughs> Davide tries and it's a joke. <laughs> He'll be like taking a break at like 1030 outside with his coffee and his cigarette. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm taking a break. I have, it's, it's good to sit. It's good to sit down and, and feel the breeze in the sun. I was like, yeah. I'm working. <laughs> yeah. It just, the, the pace is so it's impossible. So it's impossible. It's impossible. And I was in love. I was in love with the city. I was in love with the country. I was in love with the rhythm of, of life there. You know, and I met some extraordinarily uh, beautiful people in Bologna. And I did some small amount of traveling in, uh, in Emilia-Romagna. I went a couple of different places and uh, 
it just it totally changed. Three months have changed my life. Absolutely. Did you come back after the three months or did you stay? So I stayed the three months because I completely run out of money. I had no more money. So I had to go back and I had to get a job. So I flew back to LA and I was immediately called by a headhunter. And he was like, what are you doing? Like, I'm sleeping. I'm tired. I'm jet lagged. Leave me alone. He's like, you need a job, don't you? And I said, yes, I do. So I want you to go and uh, talk to these people, Josh and Zoe. They've got this restaurant called Rustic Canyon in Santa Monica. Go check it out. So got the job immediately. Talk to Josh and Zoe. They're, you know, they're, they're total hippies and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, their ideals are very high strung. They're great people. I just, the way that it ended with me uh, and them was not the best. I learned a lot from it, but I took over their restaurant when it was, uh, it was absolutely failing. They were doing roughly $1.2 million. Their food and labor costs were completely out of, out of whack. They, they were, they were going to close. They were running lunch on, on Wilshire Boulevard, doing like six people in a day. It was bad. And obviously, uh, when 2008 hit, um, yeah. the financial crisis, things got a little hairy, but I ended up tripling their net in the worst economy in the United States. Wow. You know, so they went from uh, 1.2 to 3.8 million, something like that. And I had never run, I actually had a, a nervous breakdown when I was running Russell Candy because I had never run a restaurant before. I didn't know what I was doing. I had zero idea of how to run a crew, how to be a leader, how to run a PL, how to do anything. I had no fucking idea. And uh, I had literally, I had a nervous breakdown. But ended up learning from the whole experience. And, um, you know, that's at the tail end of it in 2012, met my, uh, you know, my partner in Bucato, who ended up to being a con man, an actual con man. Where is he now? I mean, we'll get into that. But I just, for Mike, where is he now? No, I did. Gone with the wind. I saw him once, actually. He walked by on Abikini and uh, he peered through the window when we had just opened about three years ago. Uh, my dad's best friend, actually, I've never talked about this publicly, but I had to drop out of college because my dad's best friend stole all his money. Like every, like the guy who like ate Sunday dinner with us oh every my. Sunday, like took, that's why I had to like move in here and take over this house. Cause my mom was like, I'm going to sell it. And I was like, this is because all that she has left is the house. Okay. So how did you meet him? So he was the partner of, uh, a bartender at Rustic Canyon and mm. he, you know, being a con man, he talked an amazing game. He, he was in a, a sustainability sector and he was a businessman and he had all these deals. He was talking to, you know, sovereign states and people from Kuwait and Saudi Arabia about investing in California infrastructure and all kinds of crazy shit. And I was like, wow, this guy really has, he's got his sh- shit dialed in. Yeah, he, he's, a, he's a real businessman. And I didn't know sh- Shift from Shinola, you know? Well, how are you supposed to know? Especially if there's someone that you know through someone else. and Exactly, exactly. So he got in my ear and he's like, listen, you're better than this place. You can be one of the best chefs in the world. You can, you can do whatever you want. Let's go into business together. So we did. We raised, uh, I think, about three million bucks, two million bucks to open Bucato. And halfway through construction, we ran into money issues. So we ended up opening the restaurant, um, you know, massively in debt. 
and there was no, there was no digging out of it. So, uh, and I didn't know how to run the business and I trusted him implicitly to be righteous with how the money was, was being spent. And the whole time he was skimming and. So it was your understanding as you're running and operating a restaurant, which by the way, was impossible to get into, had rave reviews, was making how many, how much money a night? A lot. A lot, right? Very busy. We're very busy. Building a full team, whole thing. And you're assuming at this point that he's just actually handling all the shit that you don't know how to do, correct? Correct. Everything post-guest transaction, it was all him. I handled everything in the back of the house. I was the chef. I was the creator. I was the face of the restaurant. But I was, unfortunately, also partners in the restaurant. And um, When did you start realizing he was fucking you? Was it your vendors? When he tried to sell the business to to some like offshore, you know, he drew up this, this, uh, for sale thing. He tried to sell it to some venture capital guy. And I was like, I think I need to get a lawyer. Yeah. So I, I reached out to a friend who will go unnamed because he needs to remain anonymous. I reached out to a friend and I said, Hey, can you take a look at this? Can you tell me like what this means? And he was like, ah, you know, it's kind of out of my depth. I think I'll, I'll flip this to my lawyer. And this lawyer is my lawyer till today. And he was like, get away from this motherfucker as fast as you possibly can. You need to separate this, separate yourself from this person immediately, immediately. And uh, that's when it all came crashing down. When I started to actually dig into what, what financials he would actually show me, which were all cooked, completely false uh, documents. I flipped those to this lawyer and he says, okay, this is all going to come crashing down. You need to start filing for bankruptcy. How how long after the restaurant opened did this happen? So we opened in 2013 and I left March 12th of 2015. And I actually did it. I actually did the separation letter when we were going to a, a wedding in Maui of some very dear friends. And I was like, it's perfect time. Like, cause I was like scared that he was going to do something violent to me. He had gotten violent before and I thought that he was going to try and do something crazy. So I was like, it's the perfect time. We'll be out of town. Well, let's just do it then. So I was talking to lawyers and my bankruptcy lawyer and all that. And the, the friend that I had flipped the uh, agreement to, he said, listen, I'm going to take care of all of your lawyer fees. I'm going to hire these lawyers. Don't worry about anything. I'm going to take care of everything. And we're talking serious, serious money to cover two lawyers, bankruptcy lawyer, tax lawyer, corporate lawyer. He covered the whole thing. Oh. And uh, I'm indebted to that person uh, to this day forever and ever. But um, I ended up declaring bankruptcy in 2015, $3.2 million because everything was in my name. It was in your and name. And he made sure that I, my name was uh, on every personal guarantee. Um, we had two leases. I was actually going to open a second restaurant with this guy down the street at the platform. It's going to be an American diner called Thoroughbred. So you were sitting on two leases. Yeah. So this for everyone who's listening... I mean, I've gone through moments like this in my life. When someone comes to you and gives you a deal that seems too good to be true, <laughs> it, it probably is. And I will say one of my biggest lessons in life is I know that it seems hard to like scrounge money for a lawyer at the beginning of deals, but 
it's the fucking best. worth it. The best thing oh you could God. do in your life is make sure that everything's being looked at by a lawyer before you get fucked in the end. I mean, find, truly. Find the best lawyer that you can possibly afford, maybe even above what you can afford. Uh, and it's the best investment I've ever made is, is finding the right lawyer. And um, what was it like? I mean, so obviously you had to do what you had to do because at this point, yeah, you without knowing you're th- over $3 million in debt, this is like a, a complete life ruiner, a dream crusher. How do you explain that? I mean, I don't think unless you've worked in a kitchen, nobody really understands the camaraderie and the relationships that you have with your team. So how do you even communicate that with them? I was advised to not communicate anything that was going on with any of my staff because at that point, I, hadn't, I didn't know whether or not he had gotten into the ear of anybody else, number one. Number two, I could see that he was trying to forge uh, alliances with the rest of my staff and ended up, ended up being very, very true, where he had gotten the ear of, um, of a lot of the staff and said, you know, he was blaming everything on me because my food costs were too high or whatever it was. And, that was the reason why we're going under is because he's spending too much money at the farmer's market. People who are shit talkers in work environments like that are the most toxic people. People who try to pit people against other people in a work environment are the bad people. Yeah. They poison the, they poison the well 100%. And, um, you know, I, I definitely made some personal mistakes on how I exited, uh, number one, how I exited rustic cannon. And then again, how I exited, Bucato and, and I've made amends with a majority of the people that worked for me and worked with me at Bucato, but there are still some that, uh, that hold a grudge. And, um, but that's because they won't allow me to say my piece, mm. uh, just because they're being stubborn. And I don't know. So that's just, that's a loss. And that's, that, that is what it is. So, but you live and you learn, you learn from that experience. And, Uh, It taught me that transparency and and honesty are the biggest assets that you can have in any relationship, whether it's with your wife or whether it's with uh, your coworker or even the people that are below you. Uh, Transparency is the biggest thing because how else are you going to be able to communicate effectively what's going on, especially right now with this whole fucking thing going on. Mm -hmm. uh, It's even more so important that transparency of how we're going about fixing an issue as a family together. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the times people have good insight. Uh, if you give them the opportunity and the platform to express that insight, it gives them personal power. It gives them a feeling and a sense that they're part of this culture. Mm-hmm. And the people that don't do that, uh, you know, run restaurants and run businesses that can be successful, but, but won't be as successful as they possibly could. You can feel that when you walk into a restaurant. 100%. And you can feel that when you walk into any company, how the leader, you know, that vibe trickles down to the smallest person at that company or within that restaurant, how your bus boy, how happy your bus boy is, how happy the servers are. So, I mean, truly Felix is really, that's why, I mean, that's why Davide and I have continued. Well, first of all, we love you and it's the best food fucking outside of Italy <laughs> and probably probably a lot better than a lot of Italian restaurants in Italy too because I've eaten some shitty pasta but the warmth and the vibe and the level at which your servers are so proud of the food that they're serving is unbelievable you just feel like you're wrapped in this like warm blanket when you walk in there so let's actually get into that so you have 
soul crushing dreams shattered burned <laughs> to the ground at this point with Bucato, which is I can't imagine how you emotionally even try to drag yourself out from under that. And then did you give yourself some time or were you like, I have to fucking get my feet back on the ground as soon as possible? I definitely had like a few dark moments for sure, but I mm-hmm. knew that it was never in my mind that, that I wanted to stop what I was doing. I had this burning desire to continue on with pasta, but I knew that for me to be successful in the restaurant business, I had to relearn the business mm-hmm. like from scratch because everything that I knew up to that point, I'd been taught by a con man, right? Yeah. So it was all bullshit. I had the foundation and bullshit. So I set out to find a, a, another mentor who, who was the master of his universe. And my friend, uh, CJ Jacobson was on Top Chef. We went to a culinary school together. He, had, he was working for a man named Rich Melman in Chicago. Rich Melman owns a restaurant group called Lettuce Entertain You. Mm-hmm. $3 billion uh, restaurant group. So I figured he... Might know something. He might know. <laughs> so I said, uh, you know, CJ made an uh, introduction and Rich and I said, all right, let's try it out. I moved to Chicago and ended up staying there six, eight months. Lived in a hotel for eight months. Cool. And um, that was our deal. I, I reformulated every single recipe that he had coming, you know, in regards to pasta and all the restaurants that he had that served pasta. Mm-hmm. We formatted all the systems, new recipes, new fillings, a whole bit. And in, in exchange, he taught me the business. Brilliant. So, but again, that was, I was so incredibly unfulfilled from, from a creative point mm-hmm. that, you know, I got, you know, living in a hotel, drinking heavily because I'm away from my, my wife. Yeah. My new wife at this time, I was completely miserable making way too much money and um, for what I was doing. And I didn't feel good about it. So uh, I was sitting on the edge of my bed and uh, I get an email from Janet Zuccarini, Gusto54, who had gotten my email address from some food writer who had written an article about me in like 2012. And he said, basically, I don't know if you found a chef for your new restaurant, but uh, Evan Funky's on the market. Here's his email. So Janet reached out and said, hey, I got this little, uh, this little lease on Abbott Kinney at Joe's. Do you want to be the chef? And I said... Oh, she had the lease already. She had the lease already, yeah. So she said, uh, you know, why don't you come to Toronto and, and uh, we can talk about it. So they flew me to Toronto. I cooked them exactly four pastas. No starters, no appetizers, no entrees, nothing. Which, which four? I made trofie al pesto. I made tagliatelle bolognese. I made uh, rigatoni amatriciana and spaghetti cacio e pepe. The best lineup. All stars. <laughs> Those are the all stars. Oh my god! All the stars and their uh, their COO Demetrio Bianco, who's from Basilicata. He was like to Janet, "This guy's a real fucking deal." Mm-hmm. So we made a deal and. And that was it. You know, again, we, you know, you watched the documentary. We ran into significant issues with this, with this restaurant due to, you know, delays and all that shit and, and all of the naysayers. And I'll link that in the, because everyone needs to see what it's a brilliant documentary going from starting a view, like standing in like an empty bucato and to 
And who, I mean, you walk into Felix and you don't know how many months late were you? What, like six months late on opening and way, way, way late. So, and so much like money. a million dollars over your budget. Ridiculous. <laughs> you know, but it, the story of opening a restaurant is not unique. No. The story of how people struggle in this business is, is not unique. Um, but the people within this restaurant uh, that put it together and, and how beautiful it is, it's beautifully designed. The foundation and the people that made this restaurant what it is, they're unique. And that's what makes this restaurant good is, is it has a personality. Its foundation by design is there to make you feel like you're walking into my house mm-hmm. where a lot of times you walk in a restaurant, it feels cold because you just don't feel like there's, it's any place that's familiar, even if you've been there a couple of times. And I wanted this restaurant to be, to be like Italy where, where it's instantly familiar, even if it's unfamiliar. There are things that key into a certain feeling when I go to Italy, it's instantly familiar. It's like mother's love. It's like mm-hmm. immediate. You know exactly what it is. You and get that so instantly when you walk in the door. First of all, it looks so cozy from the outside. And then the bar with like the seats where you can sit in the windows and eat is brilliant. And you standing up for anybody who hasn't been there and hopefully and if make a goddamn reservation no matter how long the wait is because it's worth every second. But Evan stands in front of the line and calls the shots all night. And mostly from wherever you are, you can see him just overseeing every step of that kitchen. And it's, you never see that at a restaurant ever. Well, that I think that for me, that's how it has to be. People who work within restaurant are a lot like uh, children, not in a demeaning way, but in a way that Children ultimately emulate their parents. And I know this because I was a, once a child and I am a man now and I see my parents and I was like, I'm exactly what they showed me during childhood. Mm-hmm. I emulate their compassion, their love, their empathy, all of that. And restaurant people who work in restaurants are the same thing. Chefs are parents and the employees that work with you, they will emulate your passion. They will reflect your dedication. They will reflect how much you work. Nothing is lost on them because they're watching you 100% of the time. And that's everybody from the GM to the dishwasher. Mm -hmm. They're watching you. And the fish stinks from the head down. Mm -hmm. So, and that's why I'm there. And that's, you know, for the better part of three years, I work seven days a week. I was going to say, tell me that number because it was in like the LA Times article. How many days in a row did you work once that restaurant opened? Oh, I think consecutively. I took, honestly, I can't even remember. I think I took four days off, four days off in the first, I don't know, maybe 10 months. Four days off. I've, I honestly, I can't remember, but it was, it, I was there every single day. And even to now, before the, you know, this whole global disaster, I was working six days a week. Only taking, you know, and sometimes most weeks I would only take half day off on Sunday because otherwise my wife would just completely kill me. (laughs) So not to even get too personal, but how do you, first of all, it takes a a certain kind of woman to understand and have so much love for her husband or her partner that she knows she's not going to change you. She's not going to marry someone like you and then say, you need to stay home from work. (laughs) So first and foremost, I'm always like, know what you're marrying because people don't really like to change that much. Yeah. How do you 
find time to connect with her if you're only home. So for anyone who hasn't, this is like the most magical angel woman on planet Earth. Um, I am an expert multitasker. Mm, okay. There, there isn't a lot of time. And obviously she's very dedicated to her career and I'm very dedicated to my career. But uh, the amount of time that's spent, we make sure that it's quality. It's not on the phone. It's not watching TV. You make sure that it's quality time. That's what it is. And even if you're tired from 18 hours of work, there are still ways to show people love and uh, whether that's bringing them tea in the morning or whether that's making them breakfast or taking out the garbage or mm-hmm. whatever it is, the small things that make their life, make their life slightly easier. Those things count. Everything you do in a relationship. That counts. becomes your love language. <laughs> taking out the garbage. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's uh... Where do you guys eat when you're not at the restaurant? Oh, Jesus. I'm uh, I'm a creature of habit. So we every Sunday at four o'clock we go to a restaurant called Les Saigon. Hopefully it's still open after all this shit. It's called Les Saigon. It's a Vietnamese place. Um, it's owned by this little Korean lady who bought it from the Vietnamese family to own it previously. It's absolutely exceptional. If you guys uh, get a chance, you should go there. But uh, I go there Sunday at four o'clock and I eat the same thing on Sundays, and that's like our little half date night. I love that. It's so good. I mean, we don't eat out that much. We don't eat that much. We'll go get some sushi every now and again because she loves sushi. Um, but yeah, we eat a lot of Korean food and Asian food. And things like that. How do you develop what your final menu is going to be? Oh, that's the hardest thing in the world. It's the worst because there's so many things that I want to, I want people to try. Whether they're completely absurd and won't stick, it doesn't matter to me. It's something that's so far flung that no one's ever heard of it. I, I, want, I want to find a way to, to you know, give you a gateway drug so you'll try it one time and then you're hooked <laughs> on it. Um, it's like I, I'm writing this set my second book now, and um, there's so much stuff I want to cover, but I know eventually a good portion of that will be, will be edited out or the publisher will be say, no, nobody's going to get that. Or you can't get this tool or whatever it is. Coming up with the final menu is so hard because it's a filtration of, of what you think is best. And being a chef or any kind of artist, you know that immediately, especially with food, you're going to be judged and judged personally as a person and judged very, very kind of like cruelly sometimes you're judged uh, because restaurants and eating obviously is a very, very personal thing. And everybody has their own measure of what salty is or what's spicy or Absolutely. what's good, what's soft, what's punchy, all of that. So it's, it's so difficult to find a middle ground where you're kind of like writing, writing this fence where there's enough on the menu that is approachable and there's enough on there that gives you that creative expression. And then also there's enough on there that leads to surprise for people that are dining there. So it's, it's incredibly difficult. And I don't think a lot of people understand how difficult it is to put a dish, a new dish on the menu that's thoroughly tested, delicious, everybody's on board. It's really difficult. When you develop a, a dish, is there one person that, whose opinion you trust? Like, is there one person there who's like, you gotta try this, you gotta try this? In the restaurant or in life? In, in life. 
I th- honestly, I think my, my wife is a very good judge. She is very, she's in, you know, breast cancer research. So she, she researches, she is critical by nature, uh, not in a mean way, but she really breaks things down to its very essence because that's how you have, you need to understand things mm-hmm. uh, in her line of work. So um, I'll flip things to her every now and again. Sometimes she just doesn't get it and that's okay. And be like, you know what? That's okay. That's not for you anyway. It's okay. That's not for you. That's not for you. That's what I say. Maybe we're just not right. For you. But you no, know, she, I think she's a good judge, but within the restaurant, obviously, you know, there's a team of people here and we make sure that everybody understands not just the dish and what's in it and, and its allergies and all that, but also the history and the anthropology connected to, to the actual dish or the pasta shape. It's so important that you understand the history of where things come from, because that way, you know, I'm not selling food in a restaurant. I'm selling a story, mm-hmm. I'm selling the story behind the food. And if people can hear something romantic about the bottle of wine they're about to open or, or the, the noodle that they're about to eat, if they can hear something about it that they can connect with, or it evokes some kind of memory when they eat it, then that's what it's all about. That's the goal. Everyone who's been to Italy, who's eaten at your restaurant and has that moment where they have that bite where you're just like, oh, I can like smell the Mediterranean or my skin feels sticky from being in Rome at that time. Or like, you know, I mean, the whole, that bottle of Brunello reminds me of this meal. I had an Umbria or whatever. Davide truly feels that way every time he goes to the restaurant. There's this like woof of like, wow, like that taste. Even, I mean, we had so many, for those who don't know, Evan was the most generous angel man in the world and did our wedding, which by the way, I don't know how you make perfectly al dente pasta for that many people. And you did it the weekend after for like four times as many people, which is crazy. But everyone we had here who was Italian was just... And that was so important. It's a beautiful moment at our wedding because I didn't want speeches during dinner, especially because out of respect for you, I didn't want anyone talking over the the food that you had had made because it was so special. But that looking around at my wedding and seeing everybody enjoying their meal and talking to one another and drinking this delicious wine was the honestly one of the best moments of my wedding. It was like a big dinner party. It was so special. And food does, that was because of your food, like brings out those kinds of conversations. Davin and I are obviously having this conversation a lot about the, our nervousness about what Italy is going to look like post pandemic and how, you know, how we keep pasta alive, how you keep those little restaurants alive, the bar, the corner bars, the shoe cobbler. I mean, the things that make Italy, Italy are, are its craftsmanship and, I'm kind of like, what do we do after this? Like, how do we keep supporting that country? Um, I think it's going to be incredibly difficult. I mean, I think it, first off, it's incredibly difficult to, to assess what, what will happen. I think it's impossible uh, to, to even project what it's going to look like. But what I do know, what little I do know about Italy is whether it's a pandemic or whether it's uh, an invader in, in history or fascism <laughs> or, or earthquakes or whatever, you know, the plague, uh, Italy as a country, as a society and as a mindset and as a, as a heart has an exceptional uh, resilience always has They they, they are absolute masters of, 
taking on a tragedy and somehow remaining optimistic and beautiful and romantic throughout the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is not going to be an exception to that. They're going to find a way to uh, reset their internal compass. There will be loss, 100%. I'm, I'm extremely nervous about all of the people that, that are close to me in Italy, you know, and, and their safety. You know, the, the death and extinction of many, many things that I find beautiful about the country. But hopefully Italy's love for themselves will hopefully document and try to make those things that have just recently passed or gone away, try to, to revive them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the best thing for, for all of us to do, Italy included, is to get back to doing what we do best. And that's making pasta and making people happy and mm-hmm. opening bottles of wine and telling stories. And because that's what Italy is about to me. It's about the continuation of this, you know, two, 3,000 year conversation of, of their personal history in connection to the land and the food and, and all of that stuff. That's, I think that part of Italy will always live on. It will never go away as long as Italians continue to talk, which I know that they're going to continue <laughs> to talk. Speaking of perseverance, um, I just want to touch on this and I got to let you go. I know because I'm taking so much of your time, but what was this? Three, four weeks ago, we get this call. We get this text on our phone, everything's shutting down. What goes through your mind and then how quickly, because I know you kind of just pivoted on your own. Like, what do you do to go, okay, how the fuck am I going to turn this place all of a sudden upside down? Because also your food is so much about, I mean, you cook al dente fucking pasta <laughs> fresh. So how, you know, what went through your head in terms of like, how are you going to pivot to make this kind of all of a sudden like a to-go restaurant? Yeah, it, um, I'm not going to lie. It was extremely difficult. We had to rack our brains about, number one, how we were going to survive on Abikini, the, the highest rent rack rate uh, in all of Los Angeles, if not the country. Number two, how is the food going to translate in a box? Mm-hmm. Number three, how are we going to keep everybody employed for as long as possible? And number four, how do we design something that is that continues to offer the, the hospitality that, that mm-hmm. we are known for? And that's a really difficult thing to, to kind of fabricate overnight. And, you know, we, didn't, we weren't set up to do to-go. We didn't have boxes. You know, the, the to-go boxes that we have are like flimsy little pieces of paper um, because my food doesn't go to-go. I was going to say, I highly doubt everyone, anyone's ever said, I'll take this to-go. <laughs> no, I mean, people do. I'm surprised at it. They take like the tiniest piece of focaccia home with them, which I get it. Like, I get that. I get that. <laughs> but, um, you know, the one thing that I know about this industry and it's the one thing that gives me comfort that I know that we'll, that we will absolutely survive, if not thrive after this thing is over, is that restaurant industry professionals are the most highly adaptive people in the world. Mm-hmm. We are, we live within this world that has an extreme duality. And the duality is you have to be 100% unwavering of standards at all times, but be completely adaptable minute to minute to any and all situations. And the adaptive nature uh, of the restaurant business is going to be the thing that dictates our success in this whole thing. 
And for a moment, I was like, where's the fight in everybody? What, where's the perseverance? Where's the tenacity? And it took a few weeks for, for us to kind of come out of this slump, me included, where I was just, fuck, we're going to die. We're going to go under. We're going to, you know, whatever. And, and then, I mean, obviously for me, I have a different perspective because I've already died. I've already died. I've already died in, within a restaurant. I've mm-hmm. already declared bankruptcy. I know what restaurant death smells like. And I was like, this isn't it. We're not dead. We're not even fucking close. So um, I snapped out of it and I was like, let's just make this thing happen. So we designed some things that kind of work. We're still assessing whether or not it provides the same Felix experience. Obviously, you have to do a little bit of cooking at home, but created some sauces to go and pasta kits for people to make at home so that they could have a little bit of Felix. We're still doing meatballs and soupli and pizzas and stuff like that. Uh, that's hot to go, but uh, I cannot fucking wait to stop putting food in boxes. Let <laughs> me tell you that. I want to use real plates, real plates with real cutlery, and serve people. And uh, it'll be—I think it's going to be amazing when when this thing settles down and, and we're allowed to go back to work safely uh, and get back to doing what makes us happy. And ultimately that's why I'm in this business is that I want to see people happy. I like making people happy through what I do. Uh, and yeah, you're kind of missing the end result right now. You know, you're not seeing the smiles on people's faces and the, I don't see it. You know, I see a delivery driver and I see people through masks. I can't see that you're happy picking up. Uh, the food. Mm. Um, but it's been exceptional seeing the amount of people come here and pick up and thank us for being open. And, uh, and, and so that's, you know, that's encouraging. But one I want to get my, back to making people happy. One of my uh, very close girlfriends who lives in New York, her dad lives in Pasadena. It was his birthday on Tuesday. And she said, what? You know, my dad's obsessed with Italy. It's his birthday. We're not there. Do you have any ideas of how I can make him have kind of like the most authentic yummy birthday? And I said, I arranged a, a task rabbit to go pick up Felix. And then we gave her a Gia sweater <laughs> and we dropped it on his doorstep. <laughs> I was like, here's some cashmere. Here's pasta and some dinner, monsieur. <laughs> Nailed it. The cashmere is exceptional. It's exceptional. It is. It's very, it's exceptional. It's just the fucking Italian way. It's like you live and die by this craft and there's no, it's like you and Davide are very similar in that way. Davide's margins when we sell wholesale fucking suck. There are times where we're not make their sweaters. We make no money off of and he won't waver because this is, I want it to be, you know, affordable within the luxury world. And it has to be this kind of cashmere and I'm not, he's not going to cheap out on anything. And you guys, have that same drive and that same ethic, which is you're going to fucking make it happen, you know? Yeah. I think there's an exceptional beauty in, uh, in choosing one thing and doing it well. Well, especially the most simple things, because ultimately you are making quote unquote simple dishes, right? You're making, in, in Italy, those are, they're not simple to make by any means. It takes a long time, but you're making, Food like the same way Davide's making, he's making sweaters. You know, these are not reinventing the wheel here, but to make simple things at the highest level like that is truly what I think ultimate talent is. And you yeah. have just to see your hands so gently make that beautiful pasta. I mean, it's just such an experience. 
And I'm so we're all so thankful, and it's been so beautiful to see everyone on Instagram post how how they're making their Felix meals at home. I mean, we're yeah. really happy and proud because obviously we love the restaurant so so deeply. So to see everyone support you and stand behind you in this hard moment, it's beautiful to watch. Yeah, it speaks great. highly of your character. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking an hour out of oh, your yeah. insanely busy day. That was fun. Uh, one, we're going to end with one last thing, which I ask everybody. What has been your high and low of your week? High and low of my week. That's a really hard question. It doesn't have to be something epic. It can be like you saw a woman smiling, picking up food or, you know, just like little things that can spark some joy. The Cornish on my pizza was really nice last night. <laughs> <laughs> but as simple as I can get. Good. Uh, the low, I mean, the low is every time I open up the fucking CNN app. Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> Delete that app. <laughs> Thank you so much, Evan. Thank, Thank you. you. You're the best. Thank you. Ciao. Ciao. Hi, Davide. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me once again. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Our relationship question. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. This is from, I'm just going to say anonymous because I don't want to blow up anyone's spot. Um, Here's my situation. I've been dating my current boyfriend for almost seven months. Mm. We've decided to move in together. I'm genuinely very happy. My friends think it's too soon and they have their guards up because I was engaged in living with my ex of five years. We called off the wedding and our relationship over a year ago. I'm confident in my decision or so I think I am, until I hear the constant questioning and almost fake well wishes from my friends. For once, I would like to just feel like I'm not second-guessing myself based off other reactions. It's hard not to let what others think influence me. Do you think it's too soon to move in together? Is there even a timeline? From my perspective, is is never the, the right time. Who 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 de- who determined that? Yeah, what is who said wedding is the right time? Your your friends? It's it's you don't want to get stalked in a in a in a mind cage that you are actually building by yourself you know every story and i think we are all i mean i consider myself being a a young young man <laughs> mm-hmm. but every story is it's its own path you can you can compare it's like saying oh you can't compare two stories you can't. It would be a mistake. I understand. I understand the concern. The concern sure. based on you canceling a wedding, which, by the way, congratulations on following uh-huh. your gut and not marrying someone that is not your person because a lot of people don't do that. And so you should consider yourself above and beyond what most people are capable of anyway. So, brava. But I honestly would ask your friends i would sit down with like a couple of them a little facetime i would not yeah and i would say listen do you just think i'm moving too soon or is there some big thing about this guy that i'm missing why should she give explanation sorry love i didn't mean to cut you why should you ever put yourself on giving explanation to somebody which is, it doesn't matter if he's your best friend or if he's your mother. Or if it's, Just do it what you feel right. And talking about being influenced uh, uh, by, by things or people and especially having uh, an experience like the one you, you just um, mentioned it, that actually could be a good lesson 
because that proved you that even after five years where you thought you were ready to move on and 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 get married to a person and sharing part of your life uh, with them you still had time and you felt right to you felt that wasn't that wasn't right so take that if i can give you a very sincere advice take that as a as a good lesson saying you know what worst scenario if i felt that was right and i enjoy it and i leave it what can happen to you i don't think seven months is honestly i would move in with i would have moved in with davide i regret that we didn't have more time week. living together yeah 100 i would have moved in with him before getting married not that nothing would have changed we we We, well, it was a lot at once. Yeah, it was a little bit fast forward. But, so I don't think that that's soon by any means. But what I will say, if every single one of your friends doesn't like him, I would say you got to fucking figure out why. What is that song that I, what is that song, very popular song that I, that I, first time I, I heard with you, I'm like, this makes so much sense. And who was the singer? Um, you got to give me a little bit more, babe. Um, my mama don't like you. Uh, he likes everyone. <laughs> Justin Bieber. <It's> like, <laughs> this song is like, unless, let's put it this way. I'm tr sorry, I didn't try to, to break the, the, the moment of in, intellectual thought. We were, <laughs> unless you don't feel in your gut. So, okay, let's, let's go back. Our brain, there is a part of our brain that has no language uh, capacity. It, it can express your thoughts in languages. When you have that feeling like, oh, I feel in my thoughts. Your guts. In, 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 uh, sorry, I feel in my guts. That wasn't right or that wasn't wrong. That is a part of your brain mm -hmm. that doesn't have language capability. Like they yeah. can express feeling in, in, in words. Just use that feeling all the time. Till you, till you die, because mm -hmm. ultimately, I firmly believe that, that those feelings are more, more valuable than yeah, 100%. a parent or But a I friend. But I also have to a, say, you know? and I don't mean to interrupt you, my husband. Please. I dated someone once that everyone hated and nobody told me. <laughs> yeah, we are, here we are. <laughs> But you know what I mean? Like, Absolutely. I wish that someone would have been like, Everyone was doing what they're doing to her, which is no, giving her I, fake, whatever. I, I, I hate that. You know why? Because you, you would be like, oh, so many times. Oh, I, I honestly always been with people calling me to ask me, oh, you know, I'm dating uh, Tito Caio Sempronio, or I think I'm going to move in. or You know what, dude? Enjoy. You know what, girl? Like, enjoy. Yeah, I also it. lost a friendship over telling someone they shouldn't marry the guy that they yeah, were who with. Who are so, you, you know what? to say to somebody to no, go on date? If this guy's like secretly cheating on you or there's some sort of bigger thing here that's happening, then I would get why your friends are being fake. But other than that, everyone's being a judgy fucking asshole because you called off a wedding and it's so like shocking for everyone. Also, don't share with cares? your friends that you are moving Yeah, in also don't tell anybody fucking anything. Like there is Instagram. Post a couple of pictures. Yeah, it's nobody At home and you did it. Okay, next one. I recently started dating this guy and he's amazing, mm. flawless, so much that it made me kind of suspicious. We uh, talked about yeah. exes a little and he mentioned he cheated mm. on his college girlfriend but felt terrible about it and learned from it. So I let it slide. 
Recently, however, it somehow came up again and they found out that there was a misunderstanding. Not only has he cheated on that previous girlfriend, but all three of his previous girlfriends. I don't know the details, but I'm very bothered by this information. (laughs) Excuse me? I was joking. It was a bad joke. What I'm trying to say... I'm not done. Sorry. And now you're on timeout for that comment. (laughs) (laughs) What should I do? I don't want to press him too much and seem like a crazy person. I understand people make mistakes and learn from them, but three times is definitely a few times too many. Has he matured? Am I dating a reformed cheater or am I just setting myself up to be cheated on? I guess I'm asking the age old question. Once a cheater, always a cheater. I'm going to say this. This rhetoric of women becoming crazy because they have a gut feeling that something is wrong is inappropriate and fucked up. The easiest thing a man can do is be like, oh, she's crazy. Guess what, motherfucker? You made me fucking crazy because you're doing fucked up shit. So, But I think you're not helping. I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs) That's not the way to approach it. I'm just saying she shouldn't call herself crazy for being worried that this guy might be cheating on her. First of all, I never, I don't know at what stage of her life this girl is. I can't... um, I never trust people that never, that have been not making mistakes. I never trust those kind of people. It's different. This is cheating. The this worst is serial cheating, cheating, which is not even a mistake. It's not a serial cheating. There is a reason why he's been doing it more, more than once is that he never found what he was looking for. So when you cheat, and now I'm not trying to be on, on, on his side, when you cheat, unconsciously, you're not satisfied. So you better you you might cheat it because your girl is heavy as a dab, then you like another girl that make you laugh. Or you cheat because sexually you were looking for something else. Or you were cheating because you weren't ready to to move on more. Or we're in a culture where men are overstimulated by sexual things and he's not gonna be ever satisfied. Did you ever you use Instagram? Like you go through an Instagram an Instagram in an account on a popular page now, uh, the, the popular page has slightly changed, but it's insane. Well, you, the, the, you're the, getting your the, phone. The nature, the <laughs> nature, phone nobody, you know, and I'm, I'm not even spend time on Instagram. If you think about it here and there, like I ask you to, to give a look to see what is happening. I will not get too paranoid about, Oh, because he did it in the past. He's going to do it again. Also, if he will, amen, you move on. It's not, why should, I, I think relation has to be, we got to be a little bit more light in relation. Investing in a relation doesn't mean that if you cheat on you, uh, the world is over and you have to drop it and, and all demands are the same and a cheater is a cheater. No, I, 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 think, I think it makes more sense talking about being mature to approach a relation, being a little bit more Understanding of what, what the past of a person it could be it could be. Also, past is the past. Not to be philosophical or to be too deep on this. The past is gone. If I should think about who I was in the past, and now I'm married with, with living with my mother-in-law, but a mortgage and 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 a new life, I would have never I would have never expect that four years ago I would have found myself in this situation, considering who I was. I'm not saying I was a cheater or I was, I was somebody that selfishly lived his life as a, as a young person, you know, uh, trying to make it, trying to work as hard as I could, traveling, exploring, being around, 
and doing new experience and meeting new people and thank God. Sorry if I went a little bit too long on this, but I, I really felt that there is no reason to, I would not go that far. I would not go that deep with the paranoia and saying, oh, what if he's going to cheat on you? If he's going to cheat on you, sweetie, <sighs> you know, I mean, that wasn't the one. Yeah, I wouldn't break up with him or create um, a scenario that doesn't exist because of something that hasn't even happened yet. If this guy is flawless and you're saying it's going really, really well, Enjoy it. then you should spend every second enjoying it and have a lot of sex with this guy so he doesn't feel like he needs to go get it from someone else. It's not only about that. I'm not I'm joking. No, it's, it's not only about that. It's like, I feel that this is for men and women that are not really... Um, you can really do a distinction on this. Just a, a person that feel the partner being insecure and being paranoid and being uh, alert every time. Like, where are you going? What are you doing? Who's texting you? Who's doing? Yeah, that'll Who's drive him that? to cheat in a heartbeat. That's drive. It would drive me crazy. Mm -hmm. And 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 why? Yeah, you got to be. We you are. Gotta, the, you got to be chilling. So cool. many people around today. Everything is very approachable and everything is very, everybody's very, it's, it's right there. You can find everybody, you can approach everybody. We, humanity, historically, we never had a moment like had the current one. Access to people. So if he's with you, you know. Here's also what I have to say. Men don't spend time with women if they don't want to spend time with them. That so if right. he's spending time with you and enjoying being with you and you guys are growing a relationship, Focus on that. Don't focus on something else that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Also, don't live your life where you're like, think that your life begins and ends with like this guy who like might cheat on you. That's not even a healthy way to live. You know what I mean? Like it shouldn't be like, oh my God, what if he cheats on me? You should approach this and like, mm, I'm dating him. And maybe if he, you know, is the one, then great. But like, it doesn't need to be that you're depending on this guy for your future. Like you should stand back a little bit and be like, he needs to step his game up to rise to the occasion to be someone that I want to be with. You got to switch your angle a little bit instead of being like, what do you mean, tell me? Because you're a beautiful, strong, powerful woman. You can get whoever you want and it won't be the end of the world. Amen. And that, ladies and gentlemen, concludes this week's episode of Everything is the Best. I hope you enjoyed it. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that stuff. Maybe leave a comment. But remember, shitty comments are for shitty people. Go ahead and follow me on Instagram at Pia Barancini. And I hope you have a fabulous, fabulous rest of your day. Love you. Ciao.